I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the June 7th, 2021 edition of Digging Out, where we're collectively clearing the debris from the last four days, four weeks, four years, and since the dawn of the Anthropocene. And now I'd like to introduce today's guest, Andrew Behar, who's kind enough to return to Digging Out with some victory laps. And I'm quoting him as, as recently saying, investors are showing up in a way we've never seen before and demanding action. End of quote for Andrew Behar's press release. Andrew Behar has been the CEO of As You So for over a decade. Over these 30 years, Andrew's been a strategist in the clean tech, communications, and life science sectors. Previous to As You So, Andrew founded and was CEO of a startup developing innovative fuel cell technologies, served as a chief operating officer for a social media agency focused on sustainability and has been a strategic consultant in the nonprofit sector. His book, The Shareholders Action Guide, Unleash Your Hidden Powers to Hold Corporations Accountable, is a tool definitely for digging out. Andrew Bahar joins me today from his home in Berkeley, and we're taping this interview on June 5th. Welcome back to Digging Out, Andrew Bahar. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you for inviting me. Well, last month is what you would call a show of industry, a new kind of show. It was this season that you knew things were going to amount to something. Investors' pressure exerted was a result of all of your and a coalition of Christian investment groups and many others. It was hard work, grassroots infrastructures, challenging corporations, performance and goal setting for future performance in the arenas, I want to just quickly summarize climate, workplace practices, financial compensation, and social justice. I guess I'll start with if there is a through line with what you're asking. If like, you know, the adage about if real estate is all about location, 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 Andrew, would it be fair to say that the comparable as you so refrain is disclosure, disclosure, disclosure? I'd say that was pretty good. I was going to say transparency. We believe that corporations should be disclosing transparently information that their beneficial owners need to be able to evaluate them and compare them to other companies. That, that ultimately, when a company is, is really honest with their shareholders, it leads to a much better relationship because then we can help the company to get on the path to doing, well, to reducing material risk and really to becoming a better company. Okay, so I want to congratulate you on what you all, the whole broad coalition of various groups have exerted and we'll, we'll go into some of these enterprises and specifics, some goals posted, some achievements posted here, but I would like you to talk to the breadth of all of those contributing to the shareholder revolt that we've been experiencing over the month of May and going into June. Well, we work closely with the faith-based community, and it's not just the uh, it's not just the Unitarians and the Catholics and the Presbyterians. It's also the Jews and the Muslims, and every every faith-based group has a pension fund that has a great deal of assets. And there are people in these organizations who actually use the power as shareholders to engage their companies that they own and to talk to them, and then to, if needed, escalate to a shareholder resolution. So we work closely with faith-based investors. 
We also work closely with all of the socially responsible investors. So groups like Walden and Trillium and Green Century. These are all folks who get together and, and we talk because we're all concerned about specific issues. It might be climate change, it might be toxins in the food system or racial justice or diversity, equity, inclusion, gender equality, CEO pay or wage justice. So all these issues are very, very important political spending. And so we all get together and talk and say, you know, we all own shares of these companies. How are we going to best bring to their attention these material risks? and help them to solve these problems. So it is a really amazing coalition of people dedicated to this, and, and many of them dedicated their entire lives. You know, this has been going on, really, the, the faith-based community started in the 1970s. I mean, you probably know the stories about the Jesuit priests showing up at, at General Motors to talk about apartheid in South Africa. And that was really saying, and, and the people at GM, the, the the board of GM not really saying, what are you doing here? And say, well, we are owners of this company and we think that this is not a good idea. This is against our values and we think it's not good for the company. And that's really where it started. So right at the same time as Milton Friedman was putting out these theories that corporations can do anything to make a profit, that they can abuse their employees they can externalize their costs, dump in the commons, have slavery in their supply chain. Shareholder advocates were saying just the opposite. We were saying, no, you take care of all your stakeholders and you will have a better company, which now every company has come around to agree with us. And the World Economic Forum has now backed what shareholders have been saying all this time. The Business Roundtable is now backing what shareholders have been saying this whole time. So we've seen a philosophical shift in the last few years as to what is the purpose of a corporation? And now we are all in agreement that it's about serving all of our stakeholders. So with BlackRock's Larry Fink, he's calling the greenwashing where he's seeing it. How do the shareholders with these grassroots movements, how do they sort of, do they accept this kind of allyship with Larry Fink or are, is, this, is this still some work that as you so has to keep tilling right now? Well, the thing with Larry Fink and the big asset owners is, you know, Larry Fink puts out his CEO letter, which brilliantly elucidates the problems. I mean, he states that every company must have a climate transition plan aligned with Paris goals and that they must report against it every year. We're in absolute agreement. Where he stops short is with the solution. We believe that if he finished the sentence with, or BlackRock will vote against your boards, or BlackRock will drop your company from our managed funds, that every company would immediately have that plan that we all need. So BlackRock has been great at stating the problem. And I got to tell you, this year, I believe that they have actually shifted the way they vote. Historically, they have voted against every one of our climate resolutions and every one of our CEO pay resolutions, any, all of that. So, But the big votes that we're seeing this year, I believe, are a result of BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street, the big guys saying, you know what, we've lost patience. And you got to understand, like you look at the Exxon situation. Now, Exxon. Yes, with Darren Woods, with the two board members flipping at Exxon. Um, actually, more than two. It's more actually, than two now. Actually, seven. Um, seven. And I'll explain okay. to, that to you in a moment. Excellent, please. But you got to have historical context here. So let's just go back to 2010. In 2010, as you so started filing resolutions, we've filed 21 resolutions over the last decade. All of our allies have also filed. There's been 118 resolutions at Exxon over the past decade. 
And in each one of those is really an engagement. So you got to imagine there's shareholders who are talking to the company and then deciding to escalate to file these resolutions. Through all of that, the company has been unresponsive. Now they have given us in 2014, they gave us a report that was deemed defective by every analyst. In 2017, they also gave a report that was also deemed defective. So twice they made some sort of effort, but generally they've had zero, they just don't know how to listen to their shareholders. So put this in context, this vote this year, uh, where shareholders said, we have to escalate this to the board level, that they're not listening to us. And the company has no capital discipline. They keep on investing their CapEx into more stranded assets, in, into more assets that are not going to have any returns, which means into oil and gas, as opposed to investing it into some kind of, uh, just there's so many other things the company could do. So at this point, shareholders just lost patience. And so, so first off, there was a group, there was one activist group that negotiated with the company and the company added three board seats. Among those is Jeff Ubbin, who's a known environmentalist, an ESG hedge fund person, and a guy named, his last name is Angelicus. So they added three board seats. That was in January. Then Engine One had their four board people on the slate. And at the vote last Wednesday, right. three of those were put on the board. Now, one of those knocked off one of the, the previous ones. So that gave us five. But three days prior to the annual meeting, and not many people know this, the company put out a statement. Exxon filed a letter with the SEC that said, we intend to add two more board people with climate competence. Now, they did this in order to try to get investors like BlackRock to not vote for the Engine One slate. But it was too little, too late. And so what happened is now there's five new ones, and there'll be two more added over the next 12 months. So all in all, we expect a new Exxon board of 14 with seven new board members. And so that's, um, yeah. that, that, that's quite historic. And that shows that what happens when the people who own the company, the beneficial share owners, the board reports to us. And when we lost patience as a group, and when we worked together, then we were able to actually make a major change. Now, the big question is, what are the changes the company will actually make? Will they fire Darren Woods? And when he's replaced, will they have an independent board? So the new CEO not being the board chair is very important. So right. if that happens, that's going to be a very substantive and material change. And then what's the course the company will take? If the company stops investing, as we've asked, now we're part of a coalition called the Coalition United for Responsible Exxon or CURE. And you can find at curexxon.org, we put out a statement, we put out a letter of recommendations of what the company could do in order to transition, regardless of who's on the board, what the company needs to do in order to, to really become a new company to transform and not just continue business as usual with a new board. Because we believe, honestly, if the company doesn't do these things, it's going to have to wind down. The company is so poorly managed over the last decade. They have such lack of capital discipline that this is a plan that will, we believe, save the company and actually get it to use its engineering prowess and its power to solve some of the problems in the world and make more money and be a more productive you know, and profitable company. So I want to know, Andrew, if... Those seven board members, I don't know what the performance that sort of ethics are of being a member of a board. 
in this case, that does that allow, does that raise the transparency? Are, are, are there ways that they can offer, disclose things that maybe, you know, pry open, shine the light on the inner workings of the actual boards? Or is that there's some, some sort of ethical sort of deterrent to them sort of not going rogue, but, but disclosing more than had been disclosed by the board's activities in the past? Well, companies are required by law to disclose all things that are material. Material is defined by the Supreme Court as, and I'm going to paraphrase, but any information that a knowledgeable investor would need to make a buy or sell decision. So these material disclosures are, are required, and many companies do them, and many companies do them insufficiently. So it really comes down to the investors to say, we need more. And that's oftentimes the shareholder resolutions are asking for um, increased disclosure. Now, simultaneously, there's this group, uh, you probably know the Sustainable Accounting Standard Board, that's mm -hmm. been defining materiality in a much more uh, concrete way on a sector-by-sector -sector basis. And now companies are adopting the SASB definitions, and they're actually putting these data sets into their corporate responsibility reports. So when they do that, now you've got comparability from company to company across a sector. And that's really what we need. Now, the third thing that we need is verification. We need auditing. And this is an interesting point. We actually ran an auditing resolution at both Chevron and at Exxon. We got a 48% vote at Chevron and a 49% vote at Exxon. Now, what we're saying in these resolutions is, that anything that's material is financial. Anything that's financial must be audited. Therefore, anything that's material must be audited. So if your big four auditor, if your Ernst & Young or your Pricewaterhouse is not auditing your greenhouse gas disclosures, that's a problem. And that's actually, we believe, a breach of the duty of the audit committee on the board, that they need to insist that their auditors audit anything that's material. And that's something, again, that hasn't been happening across the board. Some companies are doing it. But when we start to see that embraced across all companies, across all material things, now you're going to start to have data sets that you can actually see what's going on. Wow. Like, we can, like the fog starts to lift and you can see who's a leader and who's a laggard in each sector and why, and how the laggards can transform to, to start to adopt best practices. So we think that this is part of... A, a systemic transformation that is underway. And what we're seeing that's emerging, that's being revealed is a regenerative economy based on justice and sustainability. And that's where we're heading. And the companies who see that, adopt that and adapt to that are the ones who will succeed. The ones who say, we're gonna stay in this destructive and extractive paradigm are the ones who will go it will wind down. I mean, this is, we're going to see a lot of companies winding down. We're going to see a lot of mergers and acquisitions as this new economy emerges. But this is the economy that's been defined by the World Economic Forum and the Business Roundtable. And these are going to be the most successful companies. These are the companies investors want to put their money in and customers want to have loyalty to. So the companies who are not poisoning their customers, for example, and we or see their this, employees <laughs> or their employees. And, and we see this, an example is we've had many, many meetings and, and engagements with Kellogg and it's about 
they have been spraying all their wheat, oats, and beans with a chemical called glyphosate. It's also known as Roundup. Right. It's a carcinogen. And every company does this, not just Kellogg. But when we brought this to Kellogg, and we've written now two reports about this, they said, you know what, we're going to stop this. And they've signed a pledge that they're going to remove glyphosate, pre-harvest glyphosate, so spraying it right before harvest, from their entire supply chain. Well, that means that Ebola Special K is going to be safer to eat. And so we brought that to General Mills and to Campbell's and to all these other companies. And they're all realizing we have to do this too, just to be competitive. Because, you know, there's customers making a choice between this box of cereal and this box of cereal. And they're going to go for the one that isn't sprayed with a known carcinogen. And so, so the companies are realizing, you know what, this is actually good for business. And you know what? We don't have to buy all of that poison. It's, it's very expensive and we don't have to pay for the airplanes to spray it. And so this is why Bayer, which owns Monsanto, is now reacting to this and realizing, oh my gosh, we bought Monsanto and just the litigation liability of Monsanto is going to exceed, I think, the, the value of Bayer. I mean, I think that this was one of the worst acquisitions it could be in like the history of business. So so this is what we're seeing. We're seeing an evolution. Why would an investor want to own a company that's got all this toxicity in their products and has all this litigation happening? Why would a customer want to buy products from them? They won't. So all the money is going to shift to the companies that are saying, you know what? We, we're going to take care of all our stakeholders. We're not going to be externalizing our costs. We're not going to be dumping in the commons. We're going to take care of our employees. And, and employees, I mean, I could talk about that a lot because- that's the biggest expense that any company has. So retaining employees and attracting the best and the brightest, creating a culture where people want to work for your company. The data we've seen, you know, the McKinsey studies have shown that when an employee loves their company, like, like loves it, like really it feels like they're doing good work in the world, that the productivity goes up to 200%. We're talking about double the productivity of just normal, you know? And so that's what you want. So if you can create a culture where people, where there's diversity, where there's equality, where you're speaking honestly to your employees, where, where the company's sustainability goals are holistic, which means, for instance, Amazon. Now, Amazon yeah, and I want to ask about that. Okay, because, and for, for first, for those of you who've just joined us, you're listening to Digging Out, and my guest is Andrew Behar, CEO of As You Sow. We're recording this on June 5th, and along with their coalitions of, of many, many types of organizations that As You Sow has been having an amazing season. So when I think of Amazon, and there's inroads made, you can break it down in more specifics if you like, but I'm, I'm aware that Jeff Bezos is Mr in the future. He's probably like two decades of, ahead of everybody in what he's trying to develop. And it's what he sees is going to be the big payoff into the future. And so I don't know how this shareholder activity sort of right here, right now gets this retail behemoth to turn it around and rethink some of this supply, this, this, this waste stream that's making Amazon so what they think is so profitable right now, how, how do the shareholders sort of redirect that kind of long-term sort of thinking into sort of like back up, the current practices aren't working for anybody. 
So there's a few things going on at Amazon. I mean, we've, we've filed resolutions this year with Amazon around plastic waste. Amazon could massively reduce the amount of plastic that they have in their packaging. And they've already started doing really good things. For instance, you can select whether, you know, bring me all my stuff that I've ordered on Wednesday. So it's all in one box, you know, so that there's less deliveries and there's less boxes. They've been reducing their plastic. They could just, they just need to take it to the next level. A consolidation level. is what yeah, you're they, allowed to so, do. They if have you're the, willing. I, well, they, yeah, if you're willing. I mean, if you don't need it, like I, I've got to have that yeah. whatever pair of scissors do night, you know, um, you know, if you can wait a few days, you get it all in one box. A brilliant idea. And in terms of because they're so big and the scale of it, but they could actually just eliminate plastics entirely. And that's what we're talking to them about. They could also have a take back policy for electronic waste. So imagine if they picked up your old you know, VCR or your old TV and that they dispose of it properly. So th these are, they're things they could do much better. And because they're so big, that would be really important. The other thing they could do is, and it's, this one's really easy, is on, on climate change. They're buying a hundred thousand electric vehicles. Like their whole delivery fleet will be electrified. And that's fantastic. Their data centers will all be powered by renewables. Fantastic. But here's the odd thing. Every person at Amazon who has a 401k plan, who has a retirement plan, is invested in companies that are burning down the Amazon. Like the, the irony mm -hmm. is, has got to be noticed by, by Mr. Bezos. Amazon um, squared, tripled, yeah. Yeah, so, and it's very easy to fix this. It's just a matter of they, you know, if Bezos said fix it, it would be fixed in, you know, three weeks. But they're not thinking holistically, nor are any companies. I mean, frankly, nor is the government. I don't know if you saw, but there was a newspaper article I just read this morning that said that EPA workers don't want to own oil and gas in their 401k plan. Well, 30 million people who work for the government own oil and gas. They own coal-fired utilities. They own rainforest destruction. They own weapons and they own private prisons. They also own companies that score the lowest possible on gender equality. So, but this is every 401k plan because no one knows what's inside a mutual fund. Everybody back thinks- Back to transparency that you're working at. Back to transparency. And as you so has a whole suite of tools called Investor Values. If you go to asuso.org and it's asusow.org, um, just click on Investor Values and you can then click on Fossil Free Funds and type in the name of your fund or the ticker and it'll show you if it's a Vanguard fund, it'll show you every fossil fuel company, every coal-fired utility, every private prison. And if you're in Vanguard, you are deeply invested in private prisons. Vanguard, every Vanguard fund gets a D or an F on private prisons. So if you care about racial justice, Vanguard is investing and profiting from the manifestation of racist policy. There's no other way to think about it. So no one's aware of this. They all think, oh, Vanguard, it's got like a, a boat. I'm investing in that, you know, the Admiral Fund. I'm and just and in terms of the names of mutual funds as well, the 3,000 funds that we have on our site, we pulled a list of any fund that has ESG, environmental, social, and governance, in their name, okay? Not in the prospectus, in the name. And there's 88 of them. Of those, 44, exactly half, get a D or an F on one of our issue areas. So yeah. don't trust the name of a mutual fund. You've got to look at what's actually inside of it. And you won't find it in the prospectus. A prospectus only shows you the top 10 holdings. If you're looking at a Russell 1000 fund, we show you a thousand companies. 
you cannot find this unless you go into the SEC websites and scrape the data. And even then it's gonna be probably a year old. We update our site once a month. So we're trying to shine a bright light on where's all the money going. And this is $10 trillion of assets that are owned by a hundred million people and no one has a clue what they're invested in. So we think that just, just for starters, uh, you know, every company, not to mention every university endowment, not to mention every foundation should know how their employees are investing their money. And, and then it gets even bigger when you start looking at the pension funds across the world. Not the only pension funds that tell their pensioners, the people who are earning the money, what they're investing in is in Australia and in Denmark. Every other country in the world keeps it hidden. It's like a super, super secret. And it's, in, it's behind layers of opacity. So this is how transformation happens when people become aware that they are part of a bigger system that they are complicit in the world that they live in. You can't separate yourself and say, I'm upset about climate change and then be profiting from fossil fired utilities. It's, it, it gives the cognitive dissonance gets, gets painful. And I, I just want to double check the auditing resolution that you've uh, submitted. Does the auditing resolution deal with how prospectuses disclose those kinds of um, outcomes? No, two completely different things. So the they auditing can't reach they, that. So how does the wait, wait, no, prospect, let, me, let me explain? So, yes. so okay. So the auditing resolutions are at a company level, and we're asking for the comp every company to make sure that their auditors examine and verify the disclosures they're making about material issues, which could be greenhouse gases, right, right. it could be diversity, equity, and inclusion, it could be all of those things but that their auditors need to be involved. We need to make sure the numbers are checked. So that's one, that's, that's section A. So section B is looking at the 401k plans that the companies might have and what they're offering their employees. So there, the SEC has all kinds of rules around what is disclosed in a prospectus, how a fund is named, and frankly, they could do some work on it. The rule is basically you can put anything in a fund as long as it's less than 20%. So you could have a pharmaceutical free fund that's 19% Pfizer. The word free to the SEC means less than 20%. To us, it means zero. If you have one share of one company burning down the Amazon, we give you an F on deforestation. Okay. We're very strict about it. Now, a lot of people look at our tools and they go, that's kind of a blunt instrument. And we say it's actually an honest instrument because the word free, if somebody is investing in something that is free, they think it's zero. And other than that, it's misleading. So I just, this is, I know uh, finance 101 through uh, 201, but so when I'm talking about the auditing resolution, that's at the firm level and the resolution is at the composite of firms level. That's the difference. Um, yes, the auditing resolutions are at the firm level. The the whole investor value suite of tools and, and the report cards we're doing are at the fund level, at the fund. ETF and fund level. Yes. Okay. My guest was CEO of As You Sow, Andrew Behar, and this will be in two parts broadcast. There won't be an extended version. People are going to hear each of these two parts in the next two weeks. Thank you again, Andrew. All the Thank best. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. And Andrew Bahar truly has a lot more to say. 
talking about Warren Buffett, Mark Zuckerberg, and wins that shareholders are racking up with DuPont, General Electric, and American Express. As well, As You So will be hosting later in June, Backstage at the Proxies, and you can all get those details in the next installment of the show. Thanks for listening. Talk with you next week. <laughs>